0: God, there is no better place, there's no other place we'd rather be than right here, uh, gathered uh, with family, with brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we thank you for this amazing gift every Sunday that we have, just to be together, uh, to sing your praises, to, to fellowship with with other individuals who also say, Jesus is my King. Lord, we thank you as well that we get to sit under the authority and the power of your word. and And so, God, we pray that you challenge us today, that you'd convict us, that you would Uh, Lord, show us areas where we need to repent and submit ourselves to you. Uh, Lord, I pray that you'd use 1 Samuel 8 to exalt the name of Jesus. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, parenting has uh, its joys and its challenges. Uh, One of those challenging moments within parenting is when your child is persistently wanting something that you know in the end will not be good for them. Right, now, you know that, but, but they don't know that. And so, parents, we've got two options uh, in those moments. We can either just continue to say no, and if you've got children like mine, that means saying no two, three dozen times, um, or uh, you've got another option. And, and this one I may or may not recommend to you depending on the situation, but you could say yes, uh, knowing full well that it may not turn out well for them, but it might provide a powerful teaching opportunity. Now, I'm not suggesting uh, to say yes to your toddler who wants to play out in the busy street and um, that, you know, putting them in danger. But what I am suggesting, for example, um, a situation happened to us a few years ago where my two oldest, they're both girls, uh, they wanted to sleep in the same room and in the same bed. They wanted a sleepover. And they were having a great day together. They're getting along well, and they, they just didn't want the day to end. And so they asked if they could sleep in the same bed. Now, I know exactly how that's going to turn out. Right, they're they're gonna stay up way too late. They're they're gonna play and and giggle, which will turn into fighting and throwing pillows at each other. And and the next day, they're gonna be cranky and tired, and they're not gonna feel good. It's gonna be kind of awful for everybody. I know that's how it's going to end. So I kept saying no, and and yet they were persistent. I mean, they 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 wanted what they wanted, and they kept asking for the sleepover. So got to the point, I'm like, you know what, I'm gonna say yes. And we're going to see how this goes tomorrow. Maybe it's a great teaching opportunity. Well, it said yes, and sure enough, they said way too late. They were cranky and tired the next day. But it provided this powerful teaching opportunity to sit them down and to reinforce with them, hey, mommy and daddy, they know what's best for you. Uh, And the, the importance of obedience, especially when what you want feels stronger than what is right. I share that with you this morning because in 1 Samuel 8, Israel wants a sleepover. Israel, they want a king. And what this chapter is all about is that sometimes the most terrifying thing God can do for us is to give us what we want, to give us what we're asking, especially when what we're asking goes against God's ways. Now, since we took A uh, four-week break from 1 Samuel. I do want to maybe provide a little bit of review and summary of what we've seen and what we've learned so far in these first seven chapters. The best summary verse to try to describe the condition of God's people during this time period, which was 3,000 years ago, actually comes from the last verse in the book of Judges. Judges chapter 21 verse 25, it says, "...in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right." In his own eyes. Okay, that's the lay of the land. That's the condition, the spiritual temperature, if you will, of God's people. There's a leadership void and there's a morality crisis, right? No one's leading them well and everyone's kind of doing whatever they want to do. So, with that as the backdrop, what we learned and and what we felt in chapters one and two is that we kind of leaned in. Because we were introduced to Elkanah and Hannah, and we learned about their story. Hannah had several years of infertility, and after several years of infertility and and just painful uh, kind of years of of that, and yet praying and asking the Lord to give her a child, the Lord miraculously allows her to have a son named Samuel. And we kind of leaned in, wondering, man, could, could Samuel not only be the answer to Hannah's prayer But could Samuel be the answer to Israel's leadership void? And we leaned it even further when we got to the end of chapter 2 and chapter 3 with this theme of comparison. There's this massive comparison between Samuel's growing ministry, growing in influence, growing in godliness, in contrast to Eli, who was the priest at the time, and his two wicked sons and their diminishing ministry. And we're wondering, man, is Samuel going to be the guy that's going to lead Israel forward? But then to our surprise, chapters 4 through 6, Samuel basically steps off the scene. We don't really hear from him. And the Ark of the Covenant steps onto the scene really as the central focus in those three chapters, along with the Philistines. Philistines, the primary enemy of God's people during this time period, and chapters 4, 5, and 6, there's really no mention of Samuel there. That's very intentional because those three chapters is a picture of what happens when God's people no longer turn to God or follow God's leader. And what we saw is that that was one of the lowest points in Israel's history. They experienced great military defeat. Over 33,000 Israelites died The Ark of the Covenant is captured, and Eli the priest and his two sons, all three of them, die in the same day. Right? Very low moment. And yet, in those chapters, we also see that God single-handedly, without the help from his people, without any help from Israelite, from the Israelites, he defeats the Philistines. He secures the Ark of the Covenant back into Israel territory. And he shows his people, I do not need you. I am the self sufficient, all powerful God. It's quite the lesson for Israel to learn. But it did set up in chapter seven a high point as Samuel steps back onto the scene and leads God's people through a powerful moment of both individual and corporate repentance. As a result, peace and order are restored. As Samuel is leading, he's praying, he's preaching, and he is judging well. Okay, that's what we've seen so far. And with that as a refresher, it might surprise us now to look at the first five verses of chapter 8 and see that Israel is asking for a king. Why in the world would they be asking for a king? Peace and prosperity is kind of the, the dominant reality of what the Israelites were experiencing Why ask for a change in leadership? Well, it's because of the first three verses, and what we're told are two things. Number one, Samuel is old, which means a lot of time has elapsed between chapter 7 and chapter 8. But then secondly, we're told that Samuel has appointed his two sons as judges about 50 miles away from him in the south. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you or, or me, Uh, But the role of a judge was not passed down to the next generation. Uh, A judge was appointed by God. The priesthood was. So when Eli passed that down to Phinehas and and Hophni, like that was acceptable, but not the role of a judge. To make matters worse, we also learn that Samuel's two sons were not godly at all. They were perverting justice. They were taking bribes. Now I'm reading this. I'm like, man, this is stunning considering all that we know about Samuel. Samuel has been very godly. He's been this phenomenal leader. He knows that a judge has to be appointed by God. This is another theme. This is another lesson for us, a reminder, knowing Samuel's age, which will come up again in verse 5, this is another reminder, just by way of application this morning, that the way that you finish your life spiritually is just as important as the way you began. Right? If you're here today and, and you would characterize yourself on the older side, I'll, I'll let you do the defining there. I get a little nervous saying the O word in this church. Uh, maybe we use the word seasoned if you're kind of seasoned, right? Like This is another challenge to finish well, to, to, to not limp in as you're kind of running the last lap of life. You've got people who are watching you. You've got this church, some of the younger people here, even myself, we're watching you, wanting you to model for us what it looks like to be faithful until the very end now by way of application as well notice here that samuel who's godly has wayward sons right this shows us it's very possible to be godly to be a faithful parent and yet your children want nothing to do with the lord now i say that knowing that that is one of the most painful realities in life. I know some of us in this room, you're you're walking through that right now. I've sat across the table from from many of you where you've lamented this, that there's a a lot of pain and, and frustration and trying to figure out, what do I do with this particular situation? And yet, as we think about the Word of God and think about church history, there are many examples of people who are godly, who are faithful parents, and yet their children want nothing to do with the Lord. And man, we so desperately want just an equation to follow as parents, don't we? I know I do. I want just some sort of plug and play where you do A plus B equals C, a child where you can guarantee their spiritual condition, right? Am I alone in that? Like, I I want to, if there was an equation, man, I'd be plugging and playing every single day, and yet we don't find that in the scriptures. Why? Wouldn't that be so much easier? Like, Lord, just give us that equation and and we'll produce these wonderful kids who love you and follow you. Why don't we have that equation in scripture? It's to remind us that God and God alone changes hearts, that you and I, we can't, we can't control that. And so there might be frustration with that, or there might be greater dependency upon the Lord, and as I've sat with some of you who are who are wondering, man, wh- what's gonna happen to my child if they die? Like, where are they spiritually? I guarantee your prayer life is up because you can't control the human heart. Only God can. So it's it's a reminder here: be faithful, do what you can do, be obedient to the scriptures, but entrust to the Lord what only He can do. Right? And and even furthermore, like there. There are probably these two ditches that we need to avoid as parents, where on one side, it's to be passive, right, sinfully passive, where we think, well, if, if God's the only one that can change hearts, then, then what do I need to do? Like, I can just kind of live however I want to live, or maybe just rely on the church to do all the discipleship, all the work, like, I'll just, hands off, it's, it's in the Lord's hands. That would be a sinful response. I wouldn't be being faithful to what the word calls you to as the primary disciple maker, modeling and speaking in. But then the other end of the spectrum, the other ditch to avoid is being overly controlling, right? Trying to micromanage every little aspect to your child's salvation because only the Lord can control that heart and transform that heart. So control what you control, be faithful, be obedient, but entrust your child into the Lord's hand as far as their salvation goes. Nevertheless, okay, back on here. Uh, Verses four through five tells us that the elders of Israel, they are fed up with Samuel and his two sons. And they're, they're asking for a leadership change, again, because of his age and because of the immorality of his two sons. They make the bold request for a king. Now, this might surprise you that this request in and of itself was not entirely wrong. That God had actually promised his people a king. In fact, he promised them a king all the way in the time of, of Abraham throughout the Old Testament before 1 Samuel. In fact, at the time of Abraham, and he reiterated throughout almost every generation, he promised a number of things for his people. He promised them many, many descendants. He promised them land that they would own, a promised land. He promised them prosperity. He promised that there would be a future individual who would crush the head of the serpent Satan. He promised them that they would be a blessing to other nations. And he promised them a king. Again, this is reiterated in passages like Genesis 17, 6 and Genesis 35, Genesis 49, Numbers 24. In fact, in another passage, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14, says this says, when you come to the land that that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the other nations that are around me. right? God then specifies in that passage of specific markers of what that kind of king should be and how you should go about choosing that king. So then we get to 1 Samuel 8, and we wonder, why is this request wrong? Why is verse five so bad? Well, it's not the what that made this wrong. It's the when and the why. It's the when and the why. As I mentioned earlier, I do have two daughters. My two oldest are girls. So um, if you want to give to that Beals wedding fund now, uh, you're, you're free to do that. I know we're about to launch a campaign, but a guy can ask. Um, and I, I've actually officiated uh, two weekends, the last, uh, the last two weekends, I've officiated weddings, and man, there is a moment in each of these ceremonies where, like, my heart just becomes heavy because, Lord willing, there is a day, a day coming in which I get the privilege of walking uh, my daughters down the aisle, and just the, uh, the mixed emotions I'm going to feel because I'm praying for that, like I want that to happen, like. I'll probably be sad, I'll probably be a mess, but, but that'll be a day of, of Lord willing celebration and joy. And yes, I'm, I'm praying for that. Like I'm praying for their spouse almost every day that God would provide for them a godly husband, a, a husband who is Jesus loving, Bible dependent, church committed, humble, and yet strong, but is in the future, right? Not yet, not now, right? They're nine and six, like that's that's out in the future, right? Now imagine for a moment if they if they came up to me today and they said, "Hey, Daddy, um, uh, we're gonna get married next weekend. Um, we, we both met boys on the playground, and uh, and and we're in love. Like really, really in love. Uh, I know I know it feels sudden, but we really need somebody to protect us and care for us and provide for us and love us. So just give me a heads up. We're gonna get married next weekend. Now." how do you think I would respond to that? Like, I probably couldn't share some of those words from the pulpit here, but I, I would respond something like, I of no, like, absolutely not. Like, not now, <laughs> not like this, not some boy on the playground that you met, and, and not for these unwise reasons. Like, that would be my response, not because I'm against the institution of marriage, I am, and not because I don't believe that's part of their future. I'm praying it is, that's the game plan. Marriage at the right time to the right person is not a rejection of me as their father. That is part of the plan. That's what we're praying for. That's what we're preparing them for. But this quick wedding, uh, uh, meeting some boy on the playground at this time for these unwise reasons, I mean, they're nine and six, like absolutely not. Well, that's very similar to what Israel is doing right here in 1 Samuel 8. A future king was part of the plan. But Israel, not now, not like this, not for these unwise reasons. Like, trust God. Wait on him. In fact, we learn, verse 5, the, the, the reason why this is so wrong. They want a king. Why? So that they can be just like the other nations. All, right, all these other nations, they have this new leadership structure, We've got this king, this one individual who's bringing unity to the whole territory and all the people there. And Israel's like, man, we want that. Like they're kind of disunified. They've got this old leadership structure of a judge and they're following a God they cannot see. And so they wanted a change. Israel wrongly concluded that modifying the structure will address the condition of their hearts. So even though God had promised a king, remember, he also specified how and what kind of king they were to have in those passages. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel said, no, we're going to do it our way in our timeline. And ultimately, what we see here is the the true condition of Israel right now. Uh, Number one, we we notice that Israel is rejecting God's plan. They are elevating their way above Yahweh. Now, at the root of that, what is that? That's pride. That's exactly how pride operates in our own lives. As pride settles into our hearts, it starts to produce all these different fruits, right? Where we say in our hearts, of course we don't say this out loud, but we'll say, I know what's best. I know better than God. And that can lead to being impatient, that can lead to being overly controlling, and that can also lead to being short-sighted. Those are all evidence of, of pride in our lives. We see that here, with Israel. So they're rejecting God's plan, but they're also rejecting their identity as God's people. Remember, God called Israel to be a holy nation, right? To be distinct, to be set apart, to be different than all of the other nations. That's part of the reason why God outlined over 600 different commands and and laws throughout the Old Testament. Some of them are quite strange, is because he wants them to be set apart from all the other nations in the world. He wanted them to be dependent on him. And as they followed those commands, they would flourish and therefore be a blessing to the other nations. Well, this move here of dethroning God is a declaration of Israel saying, yeah, we don't want to be God's people anymore. Like we're we're done being that weird nation with the outdated old school leadership model. Like, we want to call the shots. We want a king. We want to be like all of the other nations. Now, this was hard for Samuel to hear. I mean, you can imagine this, right? It almost feels like he's taking it uh, personally. In fact, in verse 6, we read that he, it says that the thing here displeased Samuel when they said, give us a, a king to judge us. The, the literal translation there is that this thing Samuel called evil. Right, so Samuel is, is not liking what they're doing here. It's displeasing him. But notice what the end of verse six says. It says that Samuel prayed to the Lord. Now, just another side sermon this morning. What a challenge that is. Man, for Samuel, this thing displeased him. It probably brought a heaviness to Samuel. What's his knee-jerk response? It's to pray. It's to bring it before the Lord. Look, is that your knee-jerk response? When, when life bumps you, when you're disappointed by something, when you're hurt, when, when something displeases you, when you feel that heaviness, is your knee-jerk, man, I gotta, I gotta take this to the Lord. I've got to pray. I've got to bring it to the only one who can carry this burden. Or is your knee-jerk response, i, I got to take control, I've got to fix this, or I've got to hurt that person back, or create some sort of plan. Man, this was such a challenge, Samuel's response of, of bringing this before the Lord. In verse 7, we notice God's response. God clarifies for Samuel, hey, they're not rejecting you, they're ultimately rejecting me. But then, in surprising fashion. God tells Samuel, give them what they want. That, that kind of surprise, I'm like, what? Like you, like the Lord knows this is not gonna turn out well for them. Uh, give them their request, obey their voice. Like that definitely threw me off. But what threw me even further off was the fact that he wants to warn them before granting their request, right? That's what verses 10 through 18 are all about. Now, why warn them before granting their request? Well, this is a way that God is displaying his immense mercy and kindness. Like, don't miss this. Like, the Lord knows that for them to have this human king in this way, it will not turn out well for them. Spoiler alert, that's what 1 Samuel is all about. He knows that. And yet, on the backdrop of God executing his judgment by giving them this request, we have God's mercy and kindness. He doesn't want them to experience the tragic consequences of having this kind of human king. God wants them to experience joy and life to the full. And yet, just like a loving father who would warn his kids not to play out in the middle of a busy street or, or the negative uh, implications and consequences of a sleepover, we see God being that loving father who is warning his people, don't go down this road. So verses 10 through 18, Samuel does warn the people of what life will be like with a king. Notice that the dominant theme here is is centered around the word take. You might have picked that up as Carol was reading for us. The word take shows up six different times in verses 10 through 18. This new monarchy, which will reign over God's people, will verse 11 take their sons and put them into battle? verse 13, will take their daughters and make them perfumers and bakers. This king will take their best fields and vineyards, verse 14. He'll take their grain, verse 15. He'll take their servants and donkeys, verse 16. And he will take their flocks, in verse 17. Take, take, take. And then you get to verses 17 and 18, and this dramatic climax is that he says, this king will enslave you. Now, if you're an Israelite, that's a trigger word. That, that triggered all of these memories of the lowest point in Israel's history of being enslaved to the Egyptians. All right, Samuel is laying it out there very clearly. This is what will happen if you reject God's way. And he says in verse 18, this is your king whom you have chosen for yourself. Samuel ends his warning by essentially saying, look, if you insist on rejecting your divine king who redeemed you from slavery in Egypt, you're going to find yourself back in a lifestyle of slavery. Well, even after this specific and dramatic warning, God's people refuse to obey Samuel. They want what they wanted. Verse 20, they say, this king will rule over us. He will lead us into battles. And God finally tells Samuel, just give them what they want. Now, Samuel will obey the Lord eventually, but first he's kind of putting Israel in a timeout. He kind of sends them back to their own home to kind of think about what they have done. But the the trajectory here, as we'll look at next week, chapter 9, Israel will get a king. Look, we know how this ends. We know that this will not turn out well for them, that this is actually God executing his discipline and judgment over his people. And what we learn is that sometimes the most terrifying thing God can do is to give us exactly what we want when what we want goes against his ways. Man, there there is so much to apply here. I had a hard time kind of um, shrinking all that I wanted to say here. There's a couple of application points that are really, uh, I think, um, applicable for us. But just one thing to keep in mind, and this is something I want to keep saying as we travel through the book of 1 Samuel, it's really easy to create distance with the text. It's really easy for us to conclude, ah, this is 3,000 years ago. We're not asking for a king, right? We're Americans. We, we don't do the whole king thing. And for us to kind of conclude, there's nothing in here for us, right? That would be a mistake, right? This chapter is not just about Israel. This chapter is a microcosm of humanity. This is a picture of your heart and my heart. And let me show you what I mean here. Here's the first application point that I see is that we all have a tendency to assess our problems mechanically rather than spiritually. All right, This chapter is not about what form of government is best. All right, It's not that God's people should never have transitioned into uh, a monarchy here. But this is about what happens when we reject God's rule and reign upon our lives. At the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart, not the structure that they have in place within their leadership. And that's important because even practically for us, when when we sense that something is wrong, when we sense that something is off in our lives or we want to grow, our impulse tends to be to assume that there's something wrong pragmatically in our lives. There's something wrong with our techniques or our methods or our schedule, our calendar, our pace, our system, our structures that we've we've put in place in our lives rather than addressing the hearts. And so we think, okay, what's needed here is a little adjustment rather than repentance (laughs) or what's needed here is a little tune-up or a fresh start, or whatever it is, rather than greater love and worship for Jesus. And we just think we just need to tweak some things in order to improve rather than getting at the root issue, which is addressing what's going on inside our own hearts. So the challenge here is to not be like Israel where they think, oh, the answer here, we just need a new leadership structure. No, the challenge here for you and I, when we have issues in our lives, to dig down deeper into the condition of our hearts. I think we could also apply it this way. We could say it um, maybe more succinctly by saying, be careful of getting what you want, right? Be careful of getting what you are asking God for because sometimes when God gives you what you want, that's not a demonstration of his favor and, and his kindness. That's actually a demonstration of your stubbornness and his judgment. That sometimes the kindest thing that God can do is not give us what we want and what we're asking for, right? Just pause and think back upon your life. Think back on on these desires you've had, these requests that you've made before the Lord and God saying no, and just think about how much of a train wreck your life would have been if he would have said yes. I've got several of those in my own life. And I am so thankful that God said no to certain requests that I had and certain desires that I had, that out of his kindness, he said, no, 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 I'm going to protect you from that. And so the application here is to really stop and evaluate, what do I want? What am I asking God for? What are my requests? And and filtering them through God's word to discern our desires, we're not very good at that. We kind of think, whatever I I want, I do. What I feel is true. Whatever I desire, oh, that leads to action. We don't do a great job of sitting down and interrogating our own feelings and desires and wants. I mean, when was the last time you and the Lord had a discussion about your desires? When was the last time you sat down and thought, man, I've been praying for this a lot. Is this what's best? Does this match with God's word? Are my motives pure? Is the, is the timing right? All right so, so often we let our desires just kind of run amok, and, and it guides our lives when it should never be the conductor. Our feelings and our desires should always be the caboose. So filter them, bring them before the Lord, and not be like Israel. All right, secondly here, another application is to embrace the strangeness of being a Christian. All right, Israel, they wanted a king, why? To be like all the other nations, right? They wanted to fit in. They wanted to belong. They didn't want to be this weird, outdated country with the wrong leadership style. And it's ironic because they did stand out. There's no other nation that had a God who can part the Red Sea or perform the 10 plagues or provide all the manna. And yet they wanted to fit the mold of these other nations. And we can quickly pass judgment on them like, oh, they're, that's so foolish. But look, you and I, we do the same thing. You and I, we we have a tendency to reject the strangeness of what it means to be a Christian, right? We tend to want to blend in and fit in with the culture around us. And look, when I talk about strangeness, I'm not, not talking about being socially awkward or weird or lacking emotional intelligence or having bad breath. I, I'm talking about the strangeness that's connected to being godly, right? That's really what holiness is, what you and I are called to is to be set apart from the world, to be distinct, to be different than the unbelievers in your life. The challenge here is that that makes us uncomfortable from time to time. And we, we may not be wanting a king like other nations, right? Again, we're Americans, but if you think through your own life, what are some areas of your life that you're wanting just because you want to fit in with the world? Because being strange and godly and set apart, it, it, it makes you too uncomfortable, right? Could, could this be leading to the entertainment choices in your life? Could this be to your position on family values? Could this be to uh, some of the spending habits in your life or your ideologies or uh, immorality in your life where you're doing things that are not right but you're doing them to fit in and to not stand out, All right? And yet our identity as followers of Jesus is to be holy. First Peter 2 says that as you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Here's your identity to be a holy priesthood, to be set apart, to be distinct, and to be different from the world around you and yet so many just want to be light they want to be accepted by the world around them by their unbelievers and it leads to compromise we need to come back to having a gritty godliness that makes us weird at times thirdly though here's another application is to be aware of the danger of rejecting god's ways 1 Samuel 8 is a detailed picture of what we see in Romans 1. Romans 1 is quickly becoming a text that you almost cannot say out loud in our day and age. Romans 1, Paul is explaining that every single person has no excuse when it comes to knowing that there is a God, that there's a creator. You can look out in creation and see that. But then he says, that man has suppressed that truth. And then he goes a step further. We've not only suppressed that truth, but we've dishonored God. We don't honor God. But then he takes it a step further and he says, We no longer, we don't just suppress the truth, dishonor God. We exchange the glory of God for His created, for His creation. So we worship the created rather than the Creator. And it's this downward spiral throughout chapter one. And Paul's like, What's God's response to that? When, when humanity goes through that downward spiral all the way to the end, how does God react to that? Well, Paul basically says, God gives them what they want. God hands them over is the, is the specific phrase that Paul uses three different times, Romans 1, verses 24, 26, 28. He says, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. This is what God does. This downward spiral of rejecting God and his ways, God will execute his discipline and his judgment by saying, you want this sin so badly? Fine. Here. You take. It. I'm going to give it to you in full. I think we see that in 1 Samuel 8. Guys, people just, they, they wanted what they wanted. They wanted a king. They were rejecting God's ways. God's like, I know how this is going to end. It's not going to end out well for you, but in hopes of you experiencing those consequences, being disciplined, and coming back to me. Like Ultimately, rejecting God and his ways, it truly reveals who is the king in your life. And look, we, we can reject, and we do reject God in different ways. It's not just declaring, I want a king over the United States of America. No, we reject God whenever we say, God, I know your way is here. I'm doing this. God, I know you've spelled out clearly in your word that I need to do A, B, and C. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And we, we see this, right? We see it within sexuality, right, what, what's happening is individuals are saying, I know I was created a male, but what I want is to be a female. And they're rejecting God's ways. Right? We see this within the context of marriage. Individuals who are saying, I know I made a covenant before the Lord to be faithful to my spouse, but I want what I want. I'm going to reject God's ways, and I'm going to have sex with whoever I want, whenever I want, and I'm going to do whatever I really want to do. Right? We see this with with even practical little levels where I know God's ways is to be truthful and honest. I'm going to be, decept- be, be deceptive. I'm going to lie and twist the truth a little bit. Right? You go down the list, right? I know God calls me to be pure. I know God calls me to be generous. I know God calls me to be loving. And yet, I'm going to do what I want to do. And all of that really reveals who your king actually is. It's not what you claim Anybody can claim to be a Christian. And a lot of people do claim to be a a Christian. No, no, no. We can look at are you submitting to God's ways? Are you embracing and surrendering what he has called you to do and how he has called you to live from the word of God? Because here's the danger. Persistent sin can lead you to a place where God will finally give you over to that sin in full. You want it so badly? Here, have it, and have it in full. That Romans 1 response. And you can come to this place where through the persistence of that sin, where your heart has become so hardened that you no longer see the danger and the destruction of that sin. And I wonder, do you see the warning of that in your own life right now in this moment? Like, are some of you here Today, in this church, sitting in the seat that you're sitting in right now, listening to this text, to this sermon, because you're in a place, you're in a lifestyle of just entrenched in sin, of rejecting God's ways, of of, of even maybe flirting with sin, and you can't see the danger of it. You can't see the destruction of it. And yet perhaps God has you in this place, at this moment in time, to wake you up and to say, don't be like israel this is not going to turn out well for you do not reject my ways come back to me where there's fullness of joy and life could that describe somebody in this room where you're here today to hear this message and to see the danger of the sin that you're playing around with and to wake up and to come back to god look the danger of this is it, it's a slippery slope Right? Rejecting God's ways is usually not one big decision. It's usually small compromises, small steps further and further away from the Lord until you wake up one morning and you are 1 Samuel 8 verse 5. You've come to that place where you've said, I don't want God to be the king anymore. I want to be the king. I want to be like all the other Nations, I want to call the shots, and I'm going to reject God's ways, and I'm going to do it my own way. And perhaps some are experiencing right now that the most terrifying thing God can do is to give you what you want. Well, this does lead us to the last application point, because the heart of sin at its root is dethroning God plain and simple. It's rejecting God's ways. And this is the universal problem. Uh, We all have struggled with this, of settling for a lesser king in ourselves when there is one so much better who is available and one that is so much better whom you have been created for. But before we get to that, what we have to see is that the description in verses 10 through 18 that Samuel provides, warning his people of how the human king will treat them, that re- the reality is, is that that's you. That, that's me. When we kick God off the throne of our hearts and our lives and we become the king, verses 10, and, verse 10 through 18, that describes exactly how we lead our lives. We take and we take and we take and we lead ourselves into living a life of slavery and bondage and emptiness and eventual destruction. And some of you are at that point now where you are maybe seeing for the first time, I am no good at being the king of my life. I am not designed to be a king or a queen of my life. I, I, I need a better way. And here's the beauty, here's, here's the great news. The reality of this passage, what it's pointing us forward to is that there is a true and better king. That this true and better king wants to rule and reign over your life that leads to joy and life to the full. That this king is not a king who takes and takes and takes and leads you to slavery. No, this king is characterized by service to others. That this, came, this king came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That there is a true and better king who on the night that he was betrayed, that actually led to his crucifixion, what do we find that king doing? He is on his hands and knees, washing the feet of his closest friends, including the one that would betray him. He is serving others. That this true and better king is one who doesn't take, take, take. He is a king who gives, gives, and gives. Well, in fact, there is one thing that this king takes. This true and better king He takes our sin for us. That this king named Jesus 2,000 years ago took your place on the cross, that he died for you. He took your penalty so that three days later he rose again so that he can give you forgiveness and eternal life and hope and purpose in him. That's the true and better king. His name is Jesus the question that you have to wrestle with is this. Is that your king? Is your king Jesus? And can we look at your life and the decisions that you make and the way that you live and say, yeah, I can, I can see that you're following his ways. That you're not rejecting them. You're submitting and surrendering to him. Look, let's not be like Israel. Let's be a people that follow our King Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we do praise you, and we thank you for this passage and for the conviction that's here. Lord, in 2 Corinthians, you tell us in your word that these things were written down long ago for our encouragement. Lord, you have provided the Old Testament especially as examples for us of of perhaps what not to do. And Lord, we pray that you would help us, Lord, individuals in this room who are rejecting your way, who are living however they want to live. Lord, I pray that through your spirit, you would give them eyes to see the destruction of the choices they're making. Lord, that you would wake them up spiritually. And Lord, that you by your spirit would woo them and convince them and persuade them that Jesus is the better way, that his ways are right, that they lead to fullness of joy. So Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for all that he's done for us, that he is a king who gives and gives and gives. We do not deserve him, but we praise you for him in Christ's name, amen.